I can tell you that I enjoyed this fifth sola much, if not more, than any of the others. They all have their gifts and their distinctive uh, contribution. But this one is a culmination of the five solas. Now let me just say, what are the five solas? Um, the five solas, sola scriptura, uh, solus Christus, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, and de soli deo gloria. Are, it's been said that it's the five solas of the gospel because this is the way to summarize the Reformation. And what came out of the Reformation is bound up in these five. Sola, because Latin was the lang uh, ecclesiastical, the academic language of the 15th century. So they've come to us, and I think it kind of is a nice little memory device. It wants to... What we're saying in each case, of course, is Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and to the glory of God alone. And what we have them do, these five solas, is that they do give us a comprehensive grasp of the gospel message. Now this is the conclusion, and I'm going to read what's before you there, because I want it on, I know you can read, so I'm doing it so that it's online, so I'm going to read it. And you can see the subtitle here, The Erosion of God-Centered Worship. I will read these two paragraphs and then the affirmation and the denial. Wherever in the church biblical authority has been lost, Christ has been displaced, the gospel has been distorted, or faith has been perverted. It has always been for one reason. Our interests have displaced God's, and we are doing his work in our way. The loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. It is this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment, gospel preaching into marketing, believing into technique, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. As a result, God... Christ in the Bible, have come to mean too little to us and rest too inconsequentially upon us. God does not exist to satisfy human ambitions, cravings, the appetite for consumption, or our own private spiritual interest. We must focus on God in our worship rather than the satisfaction of our personal needs. God is sovereign in worship. We are not. Our concern must be for God's kingdom, not our own empires, popularity, or success. So therefore, we affirm this is the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This is, you know, the Cambridge Declaration that was issued in 1996. And here's the affirmation. We affirm that because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory that we must glorify him always. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for his glory alone. We deny that we can properly glorify God if our worship is confused with entertainment, if we neglect 
either law or gospel in our preaching, or if self-improvement, self-esteem, or self-fulfillment are allowed to become the alternatives to the gospel. I was taken this morning by the testimony that Aaron Williamson gave to all of us in the congregation. As he, as you remember, as he went through his experience of coming to Christ, he went through essentially what he was describing was a moral uh, upbringing. His parents and the church were obviously were uh, collaborated, though maybe not knowingly, but they did, in giving him this moral template um, by which he functioned. But then he, as he went along through that, you know, be nice, obey your parents, and, and so on, that he was aware of the fact that he was uh, unfulfilled. Something's missing. You know, God's made us for himself. There is this vacuum in us for God. And it's found in Christ. And it's found in the gospel. And then when he did find that it was in Christ, through a faithful servant who God put in his way, in his providence, then Aaron came to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And then everything changed. Of course, there was that sense of meaning then, and purpose, and joy, a completion, a sense of, I know who I am now, and I know where I'm going, I know where I've been, and I know what God has done about my sin. So now things change. So here we are then at this point in the study of the Reformation gospel message, which is the gospel message that goes back to the first century. I mean, the Reformation, the Reformers didn't invent the gospel. They just rediscovered it, retrieved it, rescued it, because it had gone into eclipse over 13, 1400 years. That's a study, by the way, that's not without a lot of profit. It's exactly how did it happen that the gospel got into such an eclipse state as it did by the 1500s. Well, I want to move through these statements that I've, I've tried to organize the thoughts so that we can see how they connect with one another and conclude with what does it mean, soli deo gloria. So let's start here. Number one, the glory of God alone is achieved when everyday life is used to serve God. Key on this statement, this language, everyday life, what difference does God make on Monday mornings? I've taken that from this, uh, that's the title of the chapter, it's chapter 10 in this book, While the Reformation Still Matters by Reeves and Chester. And <clears throat> the Reformation and I quote from page 181, and I quote, it says, The Reformation pushed all the achievement of salvation away from humanity and laid it at the feet of God. That's profoundly important, that whereas the church was presenting itself and conducting itself as to being the custodian of salvation, we'll tell you and we will offer you through us, will mediate to you God's salvation. And rather, it should have been that, the well, what the Reformation said, they laid it at the feet of God. 
Now, I want to I add something to that quote, and it's this, that, that when we really understand the Word of God, I mean, when it really gets home to our hearts, it's like rain. Actually, it's, it was in Deuteronomy chapter 32, that metaphor is used. Now, I've often thought of it. Somebody, someone years ago, I think they cross-stitched or something, that verse. Is it Deuteronomy 32, 8, about the rain coming down? And it's the Word of God, which then yields and falls upon the grass and the dry ground and makes it uh, 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 grow and produce. And with that in mind, like rain, the Word of God changes everything. Not necessarily in an instant. But transformation begins beneath the surface. Then we will begin to marvel at the flowers that bloom, like rain does, and what we're witnessing all around us here in the springtime. I'm looking out at greenery, whereas a couple of weeks ago it was brown. <laughs> Grass begins to appear with its green coat. Trees leaf out and fill up the voids in space in the landscape. All nature sings. That's the perfect metaphor for what the Word of God does. Now, what's this have to do? Well, you say, well, we knew that was true about us. Well, it was certainly true for Martin Luther, that he had been a, uh, a priest striving as hard as he could to acquire the merits that he thought that he needed to be accepted by God. And when he saw the light of the gospel, the world changed. And it can be said of Luther that he stood alone against the world. And I'm amazed the more I read about Luther, how he just, he covered all the bases once the light came on with regard to what the gospel was, and he was freed from the sacramental system. All right, let's go forward and I'll show you. <clears throat> but the question then is, what does the glory of God mean? And what brought this emphasis about in the Reformation? Now, the word glory, it's one of our favorite Christian words, glorify the Lord. I think probably early in my Christian life, to glorify the Lord was probably, I got that one in the first week or two. <laughs> uh, it's not complex. It simply means to display the greatness and the goodness of God. And I could add that to the greatness and goodness of God in the gospel. So that when God is seen in my life, when he is seen in my love, my kindness, my patience, my graciousness, my mercy, my willingness to forgive, and even in those attributes of greatness, there can be some indication of the presence of God. So that's what glory means, that God is put on display. The Reformers were fond of, especially Luther, in this matter of everyday life, the gospel showing up, in 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31. Here it is. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.
So what we're presented with then in this final sola, this soli deo gloria, is that this became a summary of the Reformation life. You understand a key on that word, Reformation life. So we say scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. All right. What, how does that show up in what we do? This is where uh, particularly I found helpful in, in Jean Edward Vaith's uh, chapter in The Legacy of Luther. Some of you may remember that name. He used to write for World Magazine some years back. A very perceptive uh, man. And he, he makes this point, and I'm going to draft on it just a little bit. I, could, I understand completely what the point that he was making that how do Christians resolve living in the world but not being of the world? It's pestered every generation of Christians, no matter what culture and place and time. So the answer to this question brings us to a very timely issue, namely, how do Christians change the environment in which they live? To put it another way, how do we influence the culture the way our spiritual ancestors did? This uh, particular subject is really what we're chasing here. That's the consequence of these other solas. Now I say influence the culture. There is a, there is a fraternal or a battle within a, for the, among evangelicals. Do we have a cultural mandate? And there are, you know, there's a bit of a, a difference of opinion on what does it mean Do we want to go out and change the world. I say yes and no. Is our mandate is to preach the gospel to all the world, you know, to take it, spread the gospel. Now, will then, as a derivative, as a consequence, when we live out the gospel, and you get enough Christians living out the gospel in their places, is that going to make a difference? Well, it did better. <laughs> if it doesn't, then something is wrong. So. Let me uh, offer some ways in which Vaith uh, offered some, and I've uh, made some adaptation of this. This is how Christians have tended to resolve this tension about what we say, being in the world but not of the world. That You understand that concept? There are, of course, those who are advocating, who have advocated withdrawal, separation. Uh, is there a biblical doctrine of separation? For sure. And yet, this has become the way in which Christians, I think, have some Christians have distorted it. We're going to see it here in, in, exemplified in the Roman Catholic system, namely in monasticism, the priesthood, that sort of thing. Martin Luther himself in his pre-conversion days. But Christians can practice their own version of withdrawal from the world, just step back and pull in, there are various ways that Christians can create their gated communities. It can be a church can become this way. And, oh, we have to really, well, I can't get off on sermons on these things, but churches can fall into this trap where we get comfortable with one another's company and uh, we end up becoming a club. And withdrawal, I was uh, at a um, funeral yesterday for Louise Grosh. Some of, I don't know if anybody remembers the Groshes. They were, they started the You for Christ Well They with Gene McGee um, back in the 19, late 40s. 
And I was converted in 1956, and so I found out about Youth for Christ, which is a very active youth ministry in the area, and I started to attend. Well, it just brought me into some good things. Evangelism, for one thing. Reach your high school for Christ. Oh, <laughs> that was huge. But there were some attendant things, and I soon found out, and I didn't have to leave it up to you for Christ to bump into this, because the church culture at that time there were certain things that if you didn't do, um, didn't go to certain places, that that kind of qualified you as being a spiritual and committed Christian. And it was a suffocating kind of legalism. But withdrawal, that was the way to <clears throat> handle it. Now today, well, oh my, uh, it's another issue. Another response to this tension, being in the world, not of the world, is assimilation. Just blend in. Um, the old illustration of the chameleon who is able to adapt and Christians just begin to look like everyone else. There are others who use uh, compartmentalization. And what they do, this sadly is what has pestered a lot of pastors and has been the, the nail in the coffin to a lot of churches, is that Sunday morning, Sunday morning piety, where you go to church, you behave, you're nice, you're on your best social behavior, and yet then you go out and it has a little church, has little to do with the rest of the week. And you can see a businessman in church on Sunday, but when he gets out into his, his work, his responsibilities during the week, it's just like the way others function. And, uh, all right, there are other ways possibly, but listen to what Vaith says about this. Luther's doctrine of vocation, pick up on this word, not vacation, vocation, is one of his most important contributions to the Christian church. Next only to his re-emphasis on the gospel and the word of God. Luther, in the doctrine of vocation, <clears throat> has to do with God's providence how he governs and cares for his creation. He further says, Few Christians today realize that these puzzles, namely this tension between being in the world but not of the world, how, how do we uh, conduct ourselves and how do we impact our surroundings, our culture, that he says few Christians today realize that these puzzles were largely solved both biblically and practically by, the, by Reformation theology. <laughs> so, therefore, we're going to be saying some things about vocation. This was, and by the way, the word vocation, it's a Latin, comes from a Latin word which means calling. Learning how to respond to God's call in every dimension of our lives including in the what is the most ordinary. Think of the most mundane and the most ordinary thing you have to do day to day, tonight, tomorrow. That is a part of your calling. How does the gospel show up there? That's the first. I'm just trying to get us some traction with this first statement. So everyday life. So what we really need here then is a robust theology of the Christian life so that Christians see voila, oh, I'm getting it. And I will tell you this, that a, the irony is a felt needs theology and preaching, which is taking over pulpits. I am appalled at the, what I, I, 
as I look around and what I hear, what I pick up, how this thing has replaced biblical exposition. And that's another sermon. All right, let me go to the second one. Number two, the glory of God alone in all things was diminished in everyday life by dividing the world into the spiritual and the secular. Let's walk through it briefly. First of all, the problem of the Mass. What did the Roman Catholicism teach with regard to the Mass? The Mass teaches that Christ's sacrifice is reenacted in every Mass. Yes, actually, his body and his blood. What message did that send to 16th century church people, the culture? What, did it, what message was it? Is that the essence of Christianity then takes place away from day-to-day life. Where do you go for what is really important to that sacred place where Christ is being sacrificed? There, then. So think, the farmer comes in, the blacksmith, the miller, the, the wife from doing her 101 chores in the home, you come, and that's then where the essence of Christianity is, is right there at that altar where the priest is. And so you go back, what's this have to do with that? Well, sorry about that. Sorry you can't be a priest and really get close to God. The Mass then was a very mechanical thing. And we've been through this on Sola Fide and Sola Gratia, that this, the Mass was saying that you're justified by infusions of grace. It's your spiritual energy drink. And you get them, you go to Mass, you know, there's penance through the sacraments, and so you get it. By the way, something that's uh, just a sidebar to this, you can notice when you look at Roman Catholicism very carefully, you see striking similarities between that and Israel's theocratic worship system, don't you? Uh, altar and routine sacrifices and priest and incense and all the, the sensuality of it. I don't mean that in a sexual sense. I mean just the senses. There is, an, that whole system was, shall we say, it was among other things, a dis- Roman Catholicism was this dispensational heresy. <laughs> and trying to bring over the theocracy into the church. All right, but further. God did not require religious duties as a kind of payment toward salvation. Here I'm quoting from Chester and Reeves in their Does the, uh, Why the Reformation Still Matters. They say, if justification is through faith, then the focus and nature of religious activity shifts radically. Let's go further. The problem of the priesthood. What is the priesthood? What did you do when you wanted to become a priest? You took the threefold vow. You took the vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. What has happened with, according to the New Testament, now this is apparent to us, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, what are we? We're priests. And... We do not recognize some special class and guild of priests. Think of the impact on culture and life in the 16th century or any time because of this threefold uh, vow that uh, was made by a priest. What did the vow of poverty do? 
Well, that was a repudiation of economic vocations. Somehow, the life of poverty then, or the, 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 not somehow, but the life of poverty becomes more holy. And you, you, you see this in, you, in 20, in even, I say 20th century, even 21st century evangelicalism, that somehow just the simple life the, in poverty is a more holy life. Really? What are you pulling back from? You're pulling back from the normal economic function and institution which God has given so that the world can move along in an organized, meaningful way and so that there can be a production and so that there can be, as Christians, work, earn money, then others are helped, the poor fed, and you are not dependent on anyone, and so on. Think of the vow of celibacy. What is it? Repudiating the vocations of marriage, parenthood, and the family. So here, now here's the priest, a vow of poverty. I mean, when Luther checked in to that, uh, the monastery and became an Augustinian monk, it was like going to boot camp. And here's your, here's your, uh, your, here are your clothes, and you didn't bring anything with you. Nothing. So here we are now with this vow of celibacy. What is no marriage, no parenthood, and family? Is that a good thing? What message did that send to society? There is this seriously flawed view of sexuality with Roman Catholicism that celibacy is the more spiritual way. And so the priests don't marry. Then there's the vow of obedience. That places oneself under the authority of the church hierarchy instead of civil authorities. And mind you, this is this has what we're going to see is we're going to Luther in the Reformation and with justification by faith. All this is this then turned on its head. Think so. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but let's go to the problem of monasticism. Here it is. <clears throat> and here's what Luther said himself: that while it emphasizes the saving power of good works, the works it requires, mortifications, rituals, devotional exercises, are not really good at all. <laughs> you will see how Luther really stirred the pot when he began to say things like this. Is that uh, I'm going to read you something from uh, Luther on this, and it's quite eye-opening. And this is from the legacy of Luther. And we're going to talk about the, uh, the, Miller's, the Miller's maid. And, uh, okay, here, let me think of this one, 84. Um, uh, okay, um, where is it supposed to be? Right in front of me. Um, yeah, here it is. It's not indented. I didn't see it. A miller's maid, if she believes, does more good, accomplishes more, and I would trust her more if she only takes the sack from the donkey than all the priests and monks do if they sang themselves to death day and night and tormented themselves until they bled. <laughs> you know, Luther was known for his in-your-face language. Did you get that? The miller's maid. And so what happened with the Reformation then is that the congregation became a place where 
It was filled with priests, church workers, served God's people, opposed to the monks. See, what the monks were withdrawing and pulling back, what happened? You come to the congregation, you economically, and marriages and family and children, rather than withdraw and pursue just so-called private holiness, your holiness then spreads out to the entire community, neighborhood, ultimately nation. You get enough Christians functioning in this way. So therefore, then, uh, and I have a note to call your attention to a little something I came across. It just was providential. That, uh, the, the reason, you know, monasticism began, one of the reasons, when you study church history, you find this out early on, is that when the Roman Empire broke apart in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D., civilization just came loose from its moorings, and things were terrible. Well, um, the, the response of some was, we've got to get some order here. We can't stay around and get assimilated into what is essentially a totally pagan uh, culture. We've got to get come together. And so mon- monks, monasticism, and if we're going to save Christianity, and if we're going to have any meaningful relationship with God, we can't go out into the world. Uh, we have to stay inside these walls. This is an article that appeared in Christianity Today. It's this March 2017. And I saw, the, um, I saw the title in the front. It didn't hit me right away. Then, oh, I got this. The, the, this is the lead article, The Benedict Option. Well, here's the article. The idea of a Christian village, how to conserve and strengthen Christians in a culture hostile to our faith, an exclusive excerpt from the Benedict Option. And it's, I I can just summarize for you, it says, all right, here's where we are. We're now, this is quite a a telling statement of how, if you want to know the state we're in, um, uh, if I can find it, I can just paraphrase it. Um, he says that, uh, which, let me just summarize it. He's saying, here is where we've come to. You are now, by holding traditional Christian beliefs with regard to marriage and sexuality and other matters, we're considered racist. We're bad people. We're not just live and let live. We are bad people. I mean, take the, the lady, the baker, the baker. And who's, who's lost her business and having to pay a fine of $185,000 simply because she won't celebrate a same-sex marriage. So it's this, multiply that, um, take it to the 10th power. This is where our culture has come. We are the enemy. So the advocacy here is a kind, uh, I wouldn't call it monasticism, but Christians need to come together in their villages and lock arms and it has a very ecumenical flavor, too, is that with Orthodox as well as Catholics and Protestants need to come together if we're going to hold to save ourselves and save Christianity and have any impact. Now, in fairness to the author here of the article, he does say, well, there are things that we do <clears throat> in our community, in our village, that impact outside. But I thought this... Interesting, like testing the waters, Christians beginning to move into villages, enclaves, walls, drawbridge. No, he doesn't say that. 
But uh, it's not a new idea. Let me go to the next thing. Sacrifice is relocated. Look at this. Protestant priests offer themselves in what way? In response to God's mercy. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service. So Luther emphasizes, and here I want to read uh, the point, what, I, what is meant by this sacrifice is relocated. Where is the sacrifice where was the sacrifice? It is in the Roman Catholic system. In the Mass. It's where the sacrifice takes place. Luther went after that uh, quite vigorously. And he said, here's where the sacrifice takes place. Uh, hear it. And uh, he says that, uh, that though people today evaluate their marriages, jobs, and other vocations according to how successful they are, to the point of abandoning, this is not Luther speaking, of abandoning those vocation, vocations when they bring in, instead what they bring instead of pleasure, Luther acknowledges the trials and sufferings that these vocations can bring. They drive us to prayer and greatest, greater dependence on Christ. He says, we're priests. And by being priest, we move the place of sacrifice to the point being in our own lives as we're sacrificing up ourselves and we're bearing our cross in doing what? Not simply in suffering, but we're bearing our cross in that as we serve others. That's where it is. That's his emphasis. The cross is the instrument of sacrifice. We're suffering for someone. What's the priest doing? The priest is just there, standing there, offering up, making a sacrifice of Christ himself. That's the sacred place. But we're all priests making sacrifices, giving up ourselves, denying ourselves for the sake of others. All right, now let's go to the third movement on this line of thought. Thirdly, the glory of God alone is realized when work is viewed as a gift from God. Now we're going to turn all this, this system, the sacramental system, on its head. If we're all priests, if we all sacri are sacrificing in our lives for other people and so forth, let's consider this. What is the role then of good works in the, life, in the Christian life? Luther's very first book he wrote, oh, I want to tell you, when he was converted, he became a, the, the title of one book I'm reading on Luther is God's Volcano. <laughs> he erupted. He started writing furiously. They couldn't keep up with him. And, of course, the printing press was there to ready to, like, it was the, the Internet of the day. And this was his first book, The Freedom of a Christian. And he says that we are saved by faith alone and that, quote, this faith cannot exist uh, this faith cannot exist in connection with works. What he's emphasizing is that we are not saved by faith plus works, partially by faith and partially by works. He makes that very clear distinction. However, however, when Luther began to write about vocation, listen to what he said, because he got criticized. You can imagine the Roman Catholic Church, they saw this, and they came after him and Calvin and the other reformers. 
And they say, and I'm going to uh, let you listen to Luther on this. And again, his words speak well here. Listen to what Luther said. Here, consider your station according to the Ten Commandments. Whether you are a father, mother, son, daughter, master, mistress, servant, whether you have been disobedient, unfaithful, slothful, whether you have grieved any person by word or deed, whether you have stolen, neglected, or wasted aught or done other injury. That what Luther said in our vocation is that contrary to what the Catholic Church was saying, oh, we know, you remember what I said that I quoted to you, Erasmus, what he said? We know what these Lutherans want. They just want wives and wealth. They're using justification by faith alone to live like libertines, just to sin, get what they want. Luther said, no, 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 no. He said, we're passive in receiving justification, but then we become active as the Spirit of God does this work within us. And Luther then goes on to point out how here is where we go in our vocation and our calling. We, have to, we deal with our sin. We have the Ten Commandments that stir up the dust of the, the way the law functions and our need, our self-examination. And then what sins do we need to confess in relation to our vocation so that we deal with our lives? Now, I have another quote, and I'm going to my book, of Why the Reformation Still Matters, because Luther said something in response to or drafting on Romans 12, 6, 1 and 2. You know what that passage is? That's where Paul was accused of the same thing. Paul was accused of being uh, of cheap grace, essentially. That's what Luther was accused of. But we know why you're, you're saying this, is that you're saved by faith alone, because then you can do anything you want. And listen to what, uh, this is what Luther said, on, where Paul said, Shall we sin that grace may abound? <laughs> no, not on your life. So Luther's answer is similar to Paul's. This is quote. Now, this is Luther speaking. Although, as I have said, a man is abundantly and sufficiently justified by faith inwardly in his spirit, and so has all that he needs except insofar as this faith and these riches must grow from day to day even to the future life. Yet he remains in this mortal life on earth. In this life he must control his own body and have dealings with men. Here the works begin. Here a man cannot enjoy leisure. Here he must indeed take care to discipline his body by fasting, watching, labors, and other reasonable discipline, and subject it to the spirit so that it will obey and conform to the inner man in faith and not revolt against faith and hinder the, hinder the inner man. As it is the nature of the body to do it if it is not held in check. The inner man who by faith is created in the image of God, is both joyful and happy because of Christ, in whom so many benefits are conferred upon him. And therefore, it is, it is his one occupation to serve God joyfully and without thought of gain in love that is not constrained. So that was his answer. He said, no, we've been born again. We're new creatures in Christ, and we're turned loose now for good works. And then he goes on to some extent, in, uh, great extent, in dealing with it. Now, I have a question here in your notes. What was Luther's doctrine of vocation? This is critical right here. This is kind of, I may have to shorten up on what I have after this, but this, this is a very, very important issue. Luther took the term and reapplied it 
the word vocation, calling, calling. He took this word and he reapplied it to the activity of all Christians. His key text was 1 Corinthians 7.20. And here it is. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Luther called this, and here, I'll let him speak for itself, himself. This is, uh, again, from uh, Faith in his book. And I want you to listen to three words that might surprise you. I found these quite, uh, um, well, it, it's a good metaphor. I like it. Here it is. Are you ready? Here's what he said. Here's what vocation is. Now, this is, he's really, he's commenting on this. This is his ex applying Psalm 147. And here's what he said. What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, but just such a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else? These are the mask of God. Get his language there. Mask of God. That's what Luther called these, whatever... Whatever you do, now I'm looking around here. I don't know. I know what. I don't want to embarrass you. I know Randy. He he does mechanic work for Marta, right? Electrical, mechanical work. Okay, Randy, that's the mask of God. You know what that means? Here's what he said: that these are the mask of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. Had Gideon done nothing but take the field against Midian, the Midianites would not have been beaten. And God could certainly have beaten them without Gideon. He could, have, he could give children without using men and women. But he does not want to do this. Instead, he joins man and woman so that it appears to be the work of man and woman. And yet he does it under the cover of such mask. It's God working. It's God working in your calling. I look at, oh, this is embarrassed Pat, but I know she makes a lot of trips back and forth from Birmingham taking care of her brother and her family. The mask of God. What's that mean? She's, she's God's surrogate. <laughs> so it isn't... Now to us we say, yes, I think I knew this already, but see how this would have just completely transformed 16th century society when people were, were conditioned to think there was a sacred place and only the priest did the whole... They could really get close to God. You couldn't because they were doing holy work. But the, this changed everything. So learning how to respond to God's call in every dimension of our lives. Listen to Luther again. This is important. Here is what he said. Luther. He says, if you are a manual labor, laborer, you find that the Bible has been put into your workshop, into your hand, into your heart. It teaches and preaches how you should treat your neighbor. Just look at your tools, at your needle or thimble, your beer barrel, <laughs> your goods, your scales or yardstick or measure. You will read this statement inscribed on them. Everywhere you look, it stares at you. Nothing that you handle every day is so tiny that it does not continually tell you this, if you will only listen. And that is... This is continuation, this idea is you're a mask of God, God working through those smallest of instruments. I, I, know, of, I know of one lady to try to make ends meet. She signed up for this, uh, where you, 
it's like visiting angel, but it's, it's not by that name, where you go in and you take care of people who can't take care of themselves. It means going into homes of old folks who can't, their children don't want to put them in a nursing home. They can take care of themselves part of the day. So it means going in and cleaning up after them, cleaning their commodes, and cleaning up after them even when they make their messes. And is that the mask of God? God's there doing that through that believer. This would revolution. The revolution is our thinking and give us great joy no matter what we're doing. And I guess I'm looking back there at Luke and he goes to class and he's got this homework assignment. He has to write a paper. He has to master. What's one of your classes, Luke? Business statistics. So here's the mask of God as he works through all this. He said, this, this is so tedious. This, I've got to memorize all this. Yes, for the glory of God and joy and doing of his God is equipping me to do with it in ways I don't know yet. But sometime, somewhere, it's going to show up. All right, these are elementary things, but I'm just saying it turned the world upside down. And so, therefore, that's how we respond. Now, I think I'm just about out of time. I'm, I have a point here. Work was given in order to reflect our likeness to him. And I'm, I'm going to skip down through that. And over that, I just wanted to make sure that we understand. Uh, I'm, I know I'm, I'm perhaps I'm laboring at making sure that we understand that labor, whether it's loading a dishwasher, cooking a meal, running errands, teaching fifth graders, that's the calling, that's the calling, that's calling. And work is a means of experiencing God's provision. And I get examples of the, re- the fact that God gave Israel land to develop and work with. And then I have a note, Do you? I don't know that you have this, Luther's Money Reformation. Did I get that in there? I, this is in the providence of God that I came upon uh, that particular. I've got an article. I, I don't have time to read it, but it's on what Luther did with regard to money. It changed everything. He became, he said, God gives us, we don't, rather than a vow of poverty, we make money. Well, what, does we do? what do we do with our money? We provide for our own, and we give it away. He was known for his generosity. Actually, Katie, his wife, she, uh, she had to hide the money because he would take it and give it away. He was just always handing it out to folks. And he also, his influence, was they set up what came to be called community chest. It's like so the, the neighborhood or community or whatever would come and there would be kind of, it was like almost a, a bank or a, a credit union, and they would set it up to help people. They could get loans, and it would just change everything for people, giving people who were trying to get traction in their work and to try to create, get capital so they could start a business uh, and help poor people as well. Luther was responsible for change. That was not the way Europe functioned in its feudal system. And where you were just felt trapped in your own uh, your own ten acres or so. So, uh, all right. With that said, in this matter of money, he he was known for giving of alms. He said Luther said poverty is not good in itself. And he said taking care of one's family and work. And you know he never received any royalties from all these books. He could have been a wealthy man, I guarantee you, because he really ran out the books. Never took any royalties from them. And he was, as I said, known for giving his money away. 
And what Luther emphasized, uh, he had a category of thought where he called such things as the church, the household, the state, and then what he called the common order of Christian love. He called those the estates, the four estates. And that these were the means by which God, he had put these so that God then, in our calling, would be seen in those places. So you, I, there's a book that does a good job of this, a contemporary book by Grant Howard, one of my profs at Western, calling Balancing Life's Demands. And he has a little diagram in the book where he shows all these uh, areas of life, government, church, recreation, um, educate school, family, all these. And it, right in the center is God. What he's doing, he's kind of knocking in a hat, this idea that, you know, it's uh, Jesus first, others second, yourself last, this priority thinking and trying to measure what you should and shouldn't do. Basically. He said, no, it's simultaneous responsibilities in all the areas of life to glorify God. And he has some very practical breakouts on this. That's a very good little book, Balancing Life's Demands. All right, I'm out of time. Let me get to this last statement. The glory of God, number four, the glory of God alone in all of life is under assault by worldview shifts in modern life. I'll just touch on this. And the question is asked, what happened to the doctrine of vocation? The new work ethic, what's happened? It's this. The new work ethic is self-justifying. Salvation is now redefined as self-fulfillment. Today, people evaluate their marriages, jobs, and other vocations according to how successful they are. This is not the Christian, uh, this is not the gospel message. The new work ethic is self-serving. Work is judged not by the service it renders to others, but by the service it renders to me, the worker. This is what I'm quoting here from Why the Reformation Still Matters. The real problem is the removal of God. In the modern world, work has become an end in itself. In many ways, it has become a God. That's how it's happened. And I have a point here, the bitter fruit of secularism, which I won't uh, try to work through. And I'll make a couple of concluding statements. But let me just warn you of something and how this can be. Uh, I'll deal with this more and while the Reformation is, is not over. We've got to be careful that we don't get into this, sep- this sacred and secular mentality. You know, it besets evangelicalism. Oh, it does. And I can give you one um, example. What are we in here in this room? What is this? Auditorium. Nobody said sanctuary. Good. <laughs> this is no, God's no more here than he is down at the BP station. Uh, let's think about that. <laughs> in that in terms of a holy place. Now we can sanctify it by our presence and what we're doing. But uh, the... That idea, making places holy. And I'll tell you another one. Now, this might step on some toes. It's this whole matter of calling. That who gets callings? Pastors, missionaries, Christian workers. They get callings. Does um, the guy that works as a mechanic at Delta in the metal shop on the second, third shift, is that a calling? Oh, we don't use that word. We don't use it. 
Luther's theology was, that's a calling. Just as much a calling. But we <clears throat> have set these certain things apart. And, and I'll tell you, there's some dangers, too, and what it, uh, the consequences is that uh, when this subjective impression that is called a calling, I feel called to the pastorate, I feel called to the missionary. I struggle with this back in seminary because Beth and I were trying to go into the mission field. What, where do we go? We were just really going through some guidance dis- issues. And so I had to think through this thing quite deeply. And that a subjective impression that I make a calling and I'll say one way, it's, I've seen Christian workers and pastors who have put their spouses and children and families through terrible situations and they couldn't be dislodged from it because they I got a calling. And it was not in wisdom and it was not that no one else recognized, do you have the gift? <clears throat> Are you qualified? Do you have the character qualities? Do you meet the standards of First uh, Timothy 3? So, and Christians have gotten themselves into some messes, I think, because they've used this subjective inner concept of a calling. And yet it's denied to people who do other things. I could go further, but it would really be stepping on toes. But uh, I would just conclude in this and put it this way. Is that true Christian work is not what is done for the church or Christian projects. Whether it camps, parachurch organizations, mission trips. They're wonderful. They're important. But Christian work is what we all engage in. It should be, in some form, some fashion. Know your gifts. Know your natural gifts. Know your spiritual gifts. What are they? Develop your gifts. Get yourself trained. And use it for soli deo gloria, for God alone. You know, it was Johann Sebastian Bach that every piece he wrote this was his identifying, these were his words, soli deo gloria. Now, you don't have to be a Bach <laughs> to do that. Just think of that as you go down the road to, as Patty drives in to do another day's work in an office where all kinds of people are hammering on her, answering phone calls, soli deo gloria. <laughs> and so for the rest of us in what we do.